this talk is based on, I, I've been working on this book for about 18 months. So this talk's kind of based on all the ideas I've been looking at so far. And, I, and as Niall mentioned, I write a column on personality for the BBC as well. So some of these ideas tie in with that. Um, OK, I'd like to start uh, by telling you a short story concerning a friend I had at school and this painting, the Verio, by Antonio Verio. It's an absolutely enormous painting. It's so big, it's actually in three panels. You can't really get an idea from this. Uh, to give you some perspective, uh, here it is, absolutely enormous. And it's been hanging in the dining hall at Christ Hospital Boarding School for centuries. Uh, now, some visitors and pupils are more awestruck by this painting than others. And when I was at the school in the 1990s, uh, a guy on my uh, year in my boarding house, he certainly was not so impressed. Yeah, I, I turned those off, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, he wasn't so impressed. He was a bit of a rebel, this chap. And one day he decided it would be hilarious uh, to get a great slab of butter, which he uh, stabbed a knife into, and he hurled it as fast as he could at the painting. I think he was aiming for the king's head in the middle. Uh, he, he missed, but it landed with a great splat, and you can imagine it lingered there, and it gradually, over the ensuing weeks and months, it kind of gradually slid down. It was a huge embarrassment to the school, uh, because actually this painting acts as the kind of centerpiece for guides of the school. They're called Vario guides for prospective parents and so on. And depending on who you ask, this chap was either a legend or a, or a hooligan. He, uh, he was punished at the time, as you can imagine. But even more bizarre was a few years later, when we were on our final year uh, at school, on the sixth form, uh, my housemaster of my boarding house, when it came to choosing a house captain, which is like head prefect in the boarding house, he chose the butter chucker uh, to be house captain. And the reason I'm telling you this is not out of any lingering resentment after all these years, maybe a little bit, but um, it's mainly I'm telling you this because actually our housemaster was pretty shrewd, uh, psychologically speaking, because uh, there is a concept in personality literature called social investment theory, which uh, states that our personalities can actually be changed by the social roles we take on, especially if we are very committed to them and we get clear feedback about what is demanded of us in the role and we're very motivated. And that's what happened with uh, my friend uh, who became house captain. He actually thrived in this role, even though he'd been a rebel before, he really thrived. He took on the responsibilities, he took them very seriously and he was a great role model uh, for... Am I echoing a bit? Yeah, you just need to move the... Hang on, that's probably good. Move it down onto the other side. That side. Sometimes it's just loud. Yeah. Mm. Is that better? Is it? A bit less echoey? Yes. Ah, sorry about that. Um, yeah, this guy really thrived in this role. And I think it's a really good example of uh, social investment theory, uh, which I'm going to come back to. It's one of the principles I'm going to come back to later in the talk about how uh, our personalities can change through life. So this, this is my kind of rough lecture plan for today. Uh, I'm going to start off... Okay, more feedback there. I'm going to, I'm going to start off uh, by telling you, making the case that personality uh, is incredibly important for our lives and our relationships. I'll tell you about the main personality traits according to modern psychology. And actually, I, I think I'm going to change... 
Do you mind if I change to the... I'll try these desk ones. Okay, so... Okay, are they... Yeah, just switch the other one off. Yeah, I've switched it off. Cool. Yeah, because I'm uh, hearing feedback. <laughs> can, you, yeah. can you still hear me okay? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll tell you about kind of the uh, modern psychology's take on, on uh, what the main personality traits are. And then I'm going to tell you about why, although personality is very important, and uh, there's a thread of continuity in our personality through lives, it's not set in stone. Uh, I'm going to take like a five minute or so break in, in the middle. And uh, for that, I'll give, I'm going to give you some kind of quirky personality tests to look at uh, during that break. And then when we come back, I'll uh, interpret them for, for you. Um, then second half, I'm going to move on to how life changes us, changes how the things that happen to us in our life change our personality. And at the same time, we don't have to be passive we can, by learning about how events change us, we can anticipate them and we can actually proactively uh, set about changing our personalities through various exercises and being more aware of this scientific literature. Okay, so first of all, I'm going to try and persuade you that personality as measured by personality psychologists is, is important. Now, it helps, I think, just to have an idea uh, what I mean by personality. So this is a kind of back-of-the-envelope uh, description of what, what I mean by personality. So it's, it's your uh, habitual emotions, like habits of thought, to some extent your cognitive faculties and your ways of relating to others. Crucially, your, your personality is how you think and act and behave automatically uh, without effort. So... You know, when an extrovert arrives at a party, the extrovert, she, uh, she doesn't think, now I'm at a party, I'm going to start being all chatty and bubbly. It's, it's, kind of, it's what happens uh, automatically, without thinking and without effort. And these aspects of our thoughts, feelings and behaviour, uh, they're, they're the ones that are pervasive over time. And they are shaped about 50-50 by our genes and but also by life experiences. Now, e even about just 10 years ago, books on uh, personality, they would tell you uh, that it's early life experiences that shape personality, and, and then it, 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 that finishes early in life, you know, kind of the, the set in stone principle. Uh, William James famously said it was like uh, from age 30, our personality is set in plaster. But over the last 10 years, there's a lot more recognition in the field that personality continues to evolve and shift through our lives, right the way through, not only uh, early in life. So you've got about 50-50 here. And then, of course, uh, our personality, therefore, influences our behaviour. That then, in turn, of course, has an impact on our life experiences, our health and our relationships. For example, people who score highly on a trait called neuroticism, which is like emotional instability, they're more likely to get divorced. Just, for, just take one example here. And of course, this then feeds back, because obviously how you behave is going to shape your life experiences. Your life experiences actually shape your personality, which we're realizing more and more. So you've got this kind of feedback loop here. And I think, like, last 18 months reading about all this stuff, you know, I'm appreciating more and more, maybe by appreciating this feedback loop, we can kind of hack into it 
uh, exploit that as much as uh, we can. Obviously, some events or lots of events in life are beyond our control. Of course, I appreciate that, but there are some things we can exert control over through our decisions and uh, our behavior and so on. And therefore, we actually end up shaping ourselves and our personality over time. So that's kind of what I mean by personality. And personality, as I mentioned, is incredibly important. This graph shows you how personality, how strongly it correlates and predicts risk of dying or mortality in the future. And it's compared here with, so this is IQ, socioeconomic status. And these ones here are personality traits. This one that correlates most strongly with mortality is conscientiousness. And you can see it's more important predictor than intelligence and your, uh, how, how wealthy your background is, the affluence of your background. Uh, this is work by Brent Roberts, by the way, at the University of Illinois. And if you are interested in this area of today, after today, a good starting point, I would definitely say, is to look up Brent Roberts. He, uh, he's a professor in America, and a lot of the research that I've looked into for my book, um, which is not a textbook, you know, it's for the public, so I'm, I'm trying to translate some of this stuff. A lot of it is by uh, Brent Roberts, and I would highly recommend uh, you look him up. Here, this is how much personality traits and other factors predict future occupational success. And you can see, okay, IQ is the most important factor. But again, personality traits uh, more strongly predict occupational success than things like parental income and your socioeconomic status. Uh, so, you, you know, your kind of uh, family background and origins. More important than that is your personality traits. Now, if, if we viewed these as set in stone, it's maybe not a particularly inspiring picture, but because I think, and I think there's increasing recognition that they are malleable to a significant degree, I think this is you know, uh, motivating because we can work on our personality traits uh, to our benefit in terms of our health and our careers as well. Now, we often think of personality maybe as slightly abstract. You know, we talk about extroverts, introverts, and uh, warriors, and laid-back dudes, and so on. And it's all kind of fairly superficial and abstract, maybe. But again, what has been unfolding over recent years is this realization that personality traits actually uh, they kind of get under the skin, so to speak. They correlate with very many physiological uh, variables. So to give you an idea, uh, for example, uh, trait conscientiousness. I'm going I'm to tell you about the different traits uh, in more detail in a minute. But one of them called conscientiousness uh, correlates strongly with cortisol levels. Cortisol is a stress hormone. In the past, it's been very difficult to link with personality because cortisol uh, fluctuates so much during the day and from one day to the next. But there's a new technique that's come along, which is uh, measuring cortisol buildup in the hair. So for a study just came out literally a few months ago, uh, the researchers, they snipped off uh, three centimeters of hair from about 2,000 participants. And they measured the cortisol in it. And it gave them a reading of cortisol buildup over the last three months. And they found that it correlated very strongly with people's trait uh, conscientiousness. And it did so even after factoring out uh, health behaviors and things, because people who are very conscientious uh, tend not to smoke tend not to drink and so on. And, uh, but crucially, 
conscientiousness correlated with this, even after factoring out those kind of behaviors, which implies people with conscientious personalities are less, uh, at a physiological level, less susceptible to stress. Your personality also correlates with your immune system function. So researchers have looked at proteins in the body. One of them is C-reactive protein, which are a marker of chronic inflammation. So we need those proteins and we need our immune system obviously to fight illness. But if you have like a chronic immune reaction, this is associated with illnesses, autoimmune illnesses, and over time it's harmful. People who score highly uh, in trait neuro neuroticism, so they are emotionally unstable, they have mood swings and so on. Uh, they show more evidence of uh, chronic inflammation in their bodies. Neuroticism and conscientiousness also correlate with uh, microbacteria in the gut. You've probably heard about, you know, we have like good and bad bacteria in the gut. So high Neuroticism correlates with having unhealthy bacteria in the gut, conscientiousness with the healthier kind. Of course, there's a cause and effect issue here. So an obvious point is how do we, you know, is it, for example, is it having unhealthy bacteria that affects your personality or is it having a certain kind of personality affects uh, the microbacteria in your gut? Uh, psychologists and uh, other scientists are still figuring out, you know, this interplay. It's probably two-way. Heart rate and blood pressure as well. We don't, we don't worry too much about our cortisol levels in our hair and so on, but we're more familiar with things like heart rate, blood pressure. Uh, again, neuroticism correlates with uh, high blood pressure. And with heart rate, there's a curious link with um, having a, a kind of more antisocial, aggressive personality type correlates with having lower heart rate, lower resting heart rate. So, uh, I mean, that is also, that's usually seen as a healthy thing. Athletes have low resting heart rates. Uh, but there is this curious link that people uh, with these kind of very sort of antisocial, aggressive personalities also have low resting heart rates. And one theory is that it's having that kind of low, very low level kind of baseline arousal levels that maybe one reason they act out, uh, you know, aggressively and impetuously and so on is because they've got this, uh, you know, they've got this craving for, uh, excitement and action and, uh, and so on. And finally, personality correlates as well with uh, different aspects of brain structure and function. So just to give you one, one or two examples, conscientiousness, a study came out just this year, linking conscientiousness with a larger cortical volume in several brain areas. And there's other research like on brain function that shows, for example, people scoring high in trait neuroticism, their brain at, at a neural level, they show greater sensitivity to negative stimuli, like unpleasant pictures, or, for example, or unpleasant words. Uh, if, you, if you have a highly neurotic personality, uh, that shows up at a level of your brain activity as well when you're uh, exposed to unpleasant things. So hopefully I've convinced you a little bit that personality is important for your future, for the lives we have, and that it's you know, closely related to our, our bodies and our health. I'm just going to tell you a little bit now about what these uh, five main uh, traits are, personality traits. Of course, there are many, many, many ways of describing each other and our, uh, our characters and personalities. 
In fact, uh, back in the 1930s, uh, Gordon Allport, he, uh, he's one of like, the founding fathers of personality psychology. He set out on a mission to uh, uncover all the words in the English language that pertain to describing each other. Like, uh, and he found over 4,000 of these words, as an exhaustive list. Some of them are quite strange, like boggish, uh, for example, or um, there's some weird ones. I don't even, you know, I don't know what they mean. Gritty. Oh, no, I suppose we know what gritty means. Um, I don't know what grease horn is. Doesn't sound too good. Um, I, like, I like blushful. I think I've definitely been blushful in, in the past when I was a teenager anyway. Um, so he found over 4,000. And obviously it's completely unwieldy to try and, you know, how to like, digest that down into a usable model of personality. But thankfully, over the last few decades, that's what personality psychologists have done. They've basically distilled out, they've weeded out all the redundancy. So they've looked, you know, so whenever two adjectives or two characteristics correlate uh, very tightly, you know, they've subsumed them under the same heading. And they've done that over and over and over with something called factor analysis. And they've arrived upon five main traits, the so-called big five, which is... Uh, pretty much a consensus now in personality psychology that that is the reliable model, that those, these are the five traits that our personalities coalesce around. And something that's appealing about it is that it's, um, it's like a data-driven theory. It comes from looking at correlations between people's scores. It's not like a, a, a theory that someone's had about, you know, oh, I think this is how personality works and I'm going to try and look for evidence for it. The big five theory comes from the data. So the first uh, trait is, and these are dimensions as well, I should say. It's like, so we all, you know, we all lie somewhere on these five dimensions. And the first, uh, extroversion, introversion, probably the one we're most familiar with because we talk so much about extroverts and introverts in everyday life. In personality psychology, it is very similar to the lay understanding. Uh, it's on a questionnaire, either the question that might tap Questions that tap your extroversion, introversion are things like, do you like chatting to strangers? But it's a bit more than how outgoing you are um, in personality psychology. It's also how active you are. Um, it's how much you are uh, attracted to reward and driven to take risks and, uh, and so on. So it's a bit more than just being sociable and so on. Uh, the pros of being an extrovert are, there's lots of evidence suggests extroverts are happier uh, in their lives, uh, higher scorers in extroversion. There are some cons though, so high scorers in extroversion tend to have more alcohol and drug problems. Uh, they're more likely to have uh, extramarital affairs, things like that, because they're, they're more drawn to rewards you know, in excess, it can lead to these kind of problems. There was a recent study that asked, uh, a British study that asked mothers, expectant mothers, if they could choose one trait that they could boost their children's, uh, their, you know, their child-to-be, if they could boost their child in one personality trait, which one would they choose? And the British mothers chose, they actually chose extroversion. Uh, maybe because we see extroverts, maybe we recognise that they tend to be happier. 
who knows? I mean, the mothers obviously were not uh, up to speed on all the literature for the different traits, but instinctively, this is what they felt would be most beneficial to their children. Uh, trait conscientiousness is, this is things like, uh, as I mentioned, uh, how healthily you live. It's how self-disciplined you are, how much you are able to resist immediate reward uh, for the sake of longer term aims. How much self-control you have. It's about orderliness. It's also about industriousness and how ambitious, so highly conscientious people tend to be more ambitious, and more goal-driven. Uh, on a questionnaire, a typical question tapping this trait might be, do you take care of your appearance? As we heard earlier, conscientiousness very strongly correlates with um, future health, even risk of dying, very strongly. It's also linked, it's one of the most st strongly uh, correlated factors in psychology with occupational success and salary and promotion and things like that. But in taken to the extreme, it's not without downsides. Conscientious people, t uh, you know, taken to the extreme, can become perhaps too rigid, maybe too conformist. It can lead, you know, in some cases maybe to unhealthy perfectionism. Okay, third trait dimension is neuroticism at one end, emotional stability on the other. Another word for it could be uh, like resilience. So if you score low in neuroticism, then you are more resilient. People who, who score highly in neuroticism are, uh, it's like they're more sensitive to negative emotions. And they worry more, they're more pessimistic. They are less predictable, more erratic and more impulsive. On a questionnaire, a typical statement you know, a neurotic person would agree with is that they worry a lot. Uh, there are many, many cons. Uh, uh, unfortunately, with scoring high on neuroticism, it's linked with uh, poorer mental and physical health, uh, relationship breakups, and so on. Uh, not really that surprising when you think of uh, like the vulnerability to stress and being you know, unpredictable in your behavior is difficult for relationships. Um, pros, it, it's not that easy to think of pros for scoring high in neuroticism, but these days, personality psychologists tend to take like an evolutionary psychology perspective on personality. So each of the traits, it, one way to think about them is almost like thermostatic settings for each of these dimensions. And, um, each of us varies in you know, the kind of level that we find comfortable. So with extroversion, intro introversion, it's the amount of sort of stimulation and excitement that we find comfortable. That's our setting. Uh, with this, it's how much we can tolerate of uncertainty and uh, bad things happening and bad moods. Conscientiousness, how much disorder we can cope with or find comfortable and so on. So we have all these, if you imagine them as like dials uh, that we all have different settings for. And it's from an evolutionary psychology perspective, you know, there's an advantage, there's a niche for all these different settings in a way. And you can imagine, especially in the past, in our ancestral past, when dangers lurked more immediately around every corner and so on, and more competition for food and mates, then actually being 
being a worrier, being very vigilant, being very sensitive to potential negative outcomes uh, could have been ad advantageous. And even if from a group, if you think of a group setting as well, you know, there are advantages to having somebody on the group who is on the lookout, who is very vigilant. Uh, like a sent there's this theory, like a sentinel theory, that some people who are emotion more emotionally sensitive, you know, they can, they can be a boon in some situations. They can be the whistleblower. So maybe, to be fair to high scorers in neuroticism, you know, they uh, can be very beneficial in some circumstances. Uh, now, quite a few surveys have been done now around the world about if you could change your personality in some way on one of the five traits, which one would you most like to change on? And this is the one. So whereas mothers said for their children, they'd most like to change extroversion. When, people are, when we're asked ourselves, which would we most like to change? This is the one. And it, around the world, too. They've done studies, not just in Europe and America, but in the Middle East and China. And people want to be less neurotic, more emotionally stable. Uh, so the fourth trait, agreeableness. Uh, this is it's kind of how warm and friendly you are, but also how trusting you are of others, how much empathy. People who score highly in this have more empathy, find it easier to take other people's perspective. Uh, again, typical questionnaire question. Uh, people scoring high in agreeableness tend to be popular. People like this who score highly, are um, they're very good at... Um, like instinctively avoiding situations that are going to make them feel bad. They tend to avoid conflict naturally. You know, it comes to them naturally to do that. And that sort of feeds back and helps them. It's easier to be agreeable if you are not in stressful conflict situations. Uh, on the disadvantage side, uh, high scorers in agreeableness tend not to do so well in their careers, especially highly competitive dog-eat-dog uh, -dog kind of careers, because if you are, you know, too sensitive to other people's interests, then sometimes it can be hard to get ahead. So depending on what your goals are in life, uh, actually agreeableness is not always um, advantageous. Uh, I've put uh, Anthony Joshua here because uh, for my book about personality change, I've been keeping my eyes open for people with stories, you know, of change, whose personalities seem to have changed in their lives. And I don't know how much you know about Anthony Joshua, the uh, heavyweight boxing champion. He started off as a teenager. He was in a lot of trouble with the police and getting into fights, and he was arrested for drug possession. Today, although he's a boxer, which I know is a violent sport, he is actually held up as a role model of civility and respect. Uh, he conducts himself you know, very admirably. He's uh, very charismatic and seems to be very caring. And he said in a recent interview, I could have gone the other way, but I chose respect. So he's one of the individuals I've been keeping my eye on who seems to have changed his personality somewhat, I would say. He, I'm sure he would score high in agreeableness now, but when he was a teenager, I'm sure if you had met him, you would think the opposite. You would think he was a, a lot of trouble and someone to avoid, probably. Uh, finally, on the big five is the trait openness to experience, which is all about, uh, so high scorers, uh, they like 
new things. They, they like new ideas. Uh, they like change. They are more into uh, aesthetic, you know, aesthetics. They're more aesthetically sensitive and cultural. They love uh, opera and poetry and reading and so on. There's some really intriguing studies around like the physiological correlates of open-mindedness. So people who score highly in this trait are more, uh, more prone to goosebumps when they hear, like if they hear a beautiful piece of music or, 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 or what have you. And um, there are other things too. Um, if there's time later, I might go into some of the other new things. Some seriously important pros for this one. So some recent studies show that people scoring high in openness to experience are actually less vulnerable to dementia. Uh, on the disadvantaged side, um, taken too far, you know, can so people who score highly are very imaginative, uh, free thinking. Taken too far in the extreme, you know, it can become. Uh, like seeing things that aren't there, but you can even slip into delusions and kind of, well, psychiatrists would call it kind of schizotypic thinking or schizotypic personality. Uh, now, some of those descriptions are a bit uh, dry and a bit abstract. So Something psychologists have been doing recently is trying to uh, look at like what are the everyday behaviors that correlate with those big five traits. And this study came out uh, last year. And they looked at, uh, I think it was 800 people in Oregon. They, they measured their personality traits. Then they caught up with them again several years later. They gave them a list of 400. It was like a really exhaustive list. 400 different kind of all weird and wonderful everyday behaviors. And they asked them how many times, how, fre oops, sorry, how, how frequently they uh, engage in these behaviors. And then they looked for correlations with the big scores on the big five traits. And they uncovered some fairly quirky uh, links. So high, high, strong extroverts, for example, said they spent more time in hot tubs. Uh, they spend more time getting uh, like on sun beds. Uh, they spend more time, I don't know why, uh, talking on the phone uh, about money. Because uh, this, this list of 400 had some weird, weird things on there. Um, yeah, they're, they're more likely as well. They, they, they confess to more often driving uh, and talking on the phone at the same time. Uh, Highly conscientious people, they are less often chewed their pencil, they said. Uh, swear, they swear less often. Uh, more likely to wear a watch, which makes sense, because conscientious people uh, don't want to be late. Probably one of the most obvious signs of being highly conscientious is that you're punctual and an early riser. Uh, high scorers in neuroticism, uh, as you might expect, they said they lost their temper more often. Not that surprising. They said they more like to say they took antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs. Uh, highly agreeable people, they said they more often spend time doing chores, the washing up and ironing. And uh, <laughs> the theory here is uh, that highly agreeable people, because they're doing things that will benefit others. So that's why they are tidying up, doing the tidying up. They also, high scorers in agreeability, uh, said they spent more time singing in the shower. 
uh, who no, I've got no idea why uh, that would correlate. Uh, this is open-mindedness. <laughs> so uh, uh, open-minded people, um, lots of the correlations were as you would expect. More time going to the opera, more likely to smoke cannabis, uh, and so on. But they also said they spent more time walking around their house with no clothes on. I guess it's an open-minded thing to do. Uh, something I didn't mention earlier is that open-mindedness also correlates with political orientation very strongly. So more liberal-leaning, left-leaning people tend to score higher on open-mindedness, and the more kind of right-leaning and conservative you are, then you tend to score lower uh, on open-mindedness. Um, how are we doing? Uh, now, some people say those big five traits don't explain the entirety of human personality. They believe there is a dark side too that's not fully tapped into by these five. So there is also, although it's a little bit controversial, the so-called uh, dark triad of traits, which you may have heard of. And the first of these is uh, narcissism, uh, which maybe used to be a more obscure concept in psychology, uh, not so much uh, since uh, Donald Trump came along. Because you probably see, you may have seen articles, you know, kind of uh, describing him as having a narcissistic personality. Psychologists are not really supposed to comment on, you know, public figures who they haven't actually met uh, and so on. It's kind of frowned upon. But there are some psychologists and psychiatrists in the States who have actually signed a kind of a, a group letter saying that they think in this case, the usual rule, <laughs> the usual rule should be uh, broken because it is such a serious issue. So uh, people who, who with narcissistic personalities, they tend to be, uh, goes without saying, they seem very vain. They're very obsessed with their reputation. They seem to turn everything around to be about themselves. Their conversation is all about themselves. They're very, very sensitive to criticism. You know, they're, very, they're more concerned about what people think about them than, any, than anything else. There's some really intriguing studies because on the surface, they can seem full of bravado, big-headed, you know, uh, overflowing with, with confidence. But uh, some really intriguing studies suggest that it's really a kind of a compensation for deep-seated insecurity. For example, um, there's brain imaging study that asks people to look at themselves in the mirror. And people scoring highly in trait neuroticism actually showed more brain activity in areas uh, related to feel feeling negative emotion. So you might think narcissists would love looking at themselves. They showed the opposite. Another paper, it involves students playing this kind of online computer game where they had to collaborate with others, passing a ball backwards and forwards uh, with other people. And sometimes the researchers made it so that uh, the participant was ignored by the other players, kind of rejected. Now, the... Adolescent, uh, I, I mean, I think they were students, um, participants who scored highly in narcissism said they weren't bothered by this at all when they were rejected. But their brain activity showed the opposite, showed more uh, signs of negative emotion and hurt and so on. Again, all these things kind of pointing that there's actually underneath the veneer of uh, big-headedness is this sort of vulnerability underneath. Uh, second, uh, the dark triad traits is psychopathy. And 
This is associated with, it's like this mixture of superficial charm. When you first meet a psychopath, you know, they, they usually uh, can seem, they, they, they score very high in extroversion, psychopaths usually. So they can seem, you know, incredibly affable and engaging uh, to talk to. But they, it's combined with this callousness. They don't care, or they seem not to care at all for others. You know, incredibly low agree agreeability on trait agreeability. Something, uh, well, a couple of interesting things have developed in the last few years is um, there's increasing focus on something called uh, uh, this, this concept of su successful psychopaths or successful psychopathy. Because we usually think of psychopaths, you know, as being like uh, serial killers or they're locked up in prison. There's increasing recognition that actually a lot of psychopathy doesn't have to go hand in hand with that violence and aggression. And actually some real high flyers, you know, uh, chief executives, uh, in some cases, some, in some cases sur like surgeons, and uh, you can imagine also uh, special forces, soldiers. They score highly on some of these psychopathy questionnaires, especially this sub subtrait called fearless dominance, which is a key aspect of psychopathy. Fearless dominance, it's like, uh, it's almost like extreme lack of neuroticism, you know, or extreme emotional stability. It's like they have ice running through their veins, which uh, in, you know, when a violent, nasty person has that characteristic, you can imagine it leads them uh, to commit crimes. But imagine you're not violent and you're not particularly aggressive, but you still have this uh, ice running through your veins, then it, it can be a huge advantage for um, you know, high stakes careers. Uh, like you imagine a like brain surgery or uh, running a, a multinational corporation. So there's it's kind of increasing recognition of that uh, there are sort of psychopaths in a sense walking among us. Um, the other thing that's emerged recently is that uh, because, because psychopaths are very uh, callous, there's, there was this idea that they're incapable of feeling empathy. New studies coming out suggest actually uh, they, they, they can experience empathy, they can take other people's perspective. It's just that that doesn't kick in automatically for them. So for most of us, it's something we kind of do automatically when we meet other people or we hear about other people. You know, we, to a certain extent, we feel for them, we take their perspective. Um, psychopaths don't, don't do that. But these new studies show that if they're motivated, if you instruct them to and you give them good reason to, then they can. Uh, it's, it's all about, uh, you know, motivating them to make that effort. And, you know, this is important for potential rehabilitation. Um, I suppose if you can show the psychopath that it's in their interest to uh, take other people's perspective in a beneficial way uh, for everyone rather than just for them, then it's a potential route to rehabilitation. Uh, the final uh, dark triad uh, trait is uh, Machiavellianism. And this is the least studied and the sort of least understood of the dark triad. People like this, uh, they, they see other people as pawns. Uh, they manipulate other people. They see nothing wrong with manipulating other people for their own ends. And they're happy to lie and cheat as well, which, is, which they do frequently. Um, 
you might think it sounds similar to psychopathy and maybe even psycho psychopathy sounds a little bit like narcissism, like there's this self-centeredness self to all of them. And actually some critics of the dark triad kind of theory say they're really all tapping into something very similar. And there's a rival, sort of like a rival model called the Hexaco model of personality, which alongside the big five traits envisages a sixth uh, trait, which is the uh, honesty and humility dimension. So proponents of that Hexaco model, they say this dark triad is really all captured by this sixth trait of honesty and humility. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's probably a lot of uh, something in that because, you know, you find, I mean, lots of people, for example, with Trump, he's, he's often accused not only of being narcissistic, but for uh, lacking empathy, for example, which, you know, which, which would go with this one and, and for, for manipulating others, which would go with the Machiavellianism. So there is a lot of overlap. How am I doing? Okay. So uh, hopefully you've got an idea now of what personality is, uh, at least according to modern personality psychologists, the traits uh, that tend to get measured and uh, that are considered important. Personality also predicts these outcomes in life. Uh, and there is an element of stability, but I want to show you now that it's not destiny. It's not fixed, like William James said, from age 30. It's uh, fluid throughout life. So <clears throat> one study uh, I'm going to tell you about, if you just imagine for a second your classmates when you were a teenager at school and you were going to go to a reunion in your 70s, do you think you would see something of their old personality all those decades later? Or would they have transformed totally the people you knew? Um, effectively, that's what this study uh, came out uh, a couple of years ago. That's what they did. They found these, this data from the 1940s, these teenagers uh, who took these personality tests and had their personalities rated by their teachers when they were age 14. And they managed to catch up with hundreds of them again, 63 years later. And they had them take exactly the same personality test and they had them nominate uh, a friend or a relative to also rate them on that same personality test. And believe it or not, there was no correlation between the two. They scored completely differently. Now they're age 77, then they scored when they were age 14. There is uh, a caveat uh, to this. Well, there, are, there could be a few, but the most important one is it, it was a very limited personality test. It wasn't like a thorough test of all the different personality traits. It was mainly focused on sort of conscientiousness-like uh, aspects of personality. But nonetheless, I think it's a good uh, recent example of uh, you know, the change that can happen across a lifetime. It was the longest study that's ever been done in comparing a, a, across such a long time span. Uh, second piece of evidence I'd like to show you is um, from the field of psychotherapy. So normally psychotherapy research, it uh, focuses on changes in symptoms. Normally, obviously, it makes sense, you know, have you decreased in your depression symptoms or anxiety symptoms or whatever it might be? Uh, this is Brent Roberts again, who I mentioned earlier, a paper by him from last year. What he and his colleagues realized is a lot of clinical psychology and psychotherapy studies 
almost sort of uh, incidentally sometimes, they have measured personality traits as well, not just symptoms. So they looked through the whole literature, like the whole psychotherapy literature, looking for studies and trials where personality had been measured. And they looked to see whether personality changes before therapy compared with after therapy. And uh, to their surprise, uh, to some extent, considering how sort of fixed many people had said personality is, they found that actually as little as four weeks of therapy uh, led to, to significant changes in personality traits, especially uh, reduced trait neuroticism and increased extroversion. And it, di it didn't seem to matter what kind of therapy, you know, CBT or psychodynamic psychotherapy, it didn't seem to matter. In fact, the amount of change in trait neuroticism that they found after a few weeks of therapy was about half as much of the change in neuroticism that you typically see across a lifetime happened in just four, after just four weeks, or, or, or roughly four weeks of therapy. And the changes, those st some studies followed up you know, over a long period of time, and these changes seemed to be stable. You know, the, it, it, people didn't regress back to their pre-therapy trait levels. There seemed to be lasting change. Now, also, our personalities don't just change through life or after therapy, our personalities also change like from one situation to the next. This actually taps into a big debate in psychology, personality psychology, that went on for decades, this kind of clash between the situationists and uh, the trait theorists. People like Walter Mitchell, who you may ha have heard of, who famous for the marshmallow experiment, he, like, he presented this evidence that suggested far more important than the traits we have for explaining behavior is a particular situation. People like uh, Zimbardo, you know, in his famous Stanford prison experiment, uh, again, you know, where he claimed like if you, ha if you create a certain strong enough situation, the situation overwhelms people's personality. So in, in the Stanford prison experiment, the idea was uh, that the, you know, people, volunteers who played the role of guard started acting in a tyrannical way, didn't matter what their personality type was. Um, so this led some to claim that personality as such is a myth. Now things have moved on and there is really an emerging consensus that both matter. Personality traits matter, situation matters. It's kind of depends partly on the time scale that you're, that you're looking at. Um, this graph shows you that how much our personalities, each individual's personality changes across different situations, on average, is bigger than how much one person varies from another in their personality. Which, if you think about it, makes sense because, um, for example, if you are study studying in the library on your own, very difficult to be, have an extroverted personality uh, in that situation, for example. Uh, if, you, if you guys took personality tests now, Sunday morning you are in a lecture theater maybe taking notes or whatever, paying attention. You'll probably score very high on conscientiousness in this moment. Um, so it makes sense that there are these situational changes. But that doesn't mean personality is a myth because personality comes into play when you average over you know, extended periods of time. Because if you, 
if you uh, measure the personality of a strong extrovert lots of times over a week, you know, it will come out in the wash that on average they are more sociable, more risk-seeking and so on um, than an introvert. And um, this graph sort of shows this, st this stability over time in our, in our traits. So if you, if you measure average extroversion across a whole week, it will correlate very strongly with average extroversion in the second week. So to understand behavior, we need to look at situational influences and appreciate uh, our long-term habits of thinking and behaving, which is our traits as well. But there is a dynamic between the two. And I think recognizing that is, is very important for deliberate personality change, which I'll, I will get onto later. Uh, I think better appreciating situational influences on our personalities and the jobs we do, the hobbies we have, the people we mix with, and how that influences our trait-like behavior uh, in the moment, and how that can accumulate. So you can imagine how that can accumulate and snowball over time. Uh, those graphs come from uh, this paper. So if you are interested in this debate uh, between sort of situationist accounts of behavior versus trait, personality traits, uh, it's uh, quite a few years old now, this paper, but I think it's a really good sort of introduction. Uh, oh, sorry. Um, because I'm, you know, writing this book about personality change and personality dynamics and development, you know, one thing I've got interested in is how situations change our personality traits, even in, you know, if it is just in the short term. And uh, this study came along recently uh, from last year, and they recruited loads of students, and for two weeks they asked them to record, they, they, they quizzed them multiple times, gave them lots of these surveys multiple times through the day over two weeks, and they asked them what they were doing. Uh, they took a little mini personality test. They uh, reported, crucially, they reported their mood, how they were feeling, their emotions. And what I think is really interesting is, so people's personality traits did vary from situation to situation, as, as we've just discussed. Uh, but it nearly entirely was explained by their mood, how their mood was different in different situations. So when the students were feeling, whatever they were doing, if it made them feel happier, more positive emotion, then they tended on the personality test to score higher uh, on extroversion and open-mindedness. When they were feeling down or sad emotions, whatever they were doing, whatever it was they were doing that was causing them to feel that way, uh, then they tended to score higher on neuroticism and lower on agreeability. When they were studying, um, they actually scored, they scored lower uh, when the students were studying on extroversion, um, lower on agreeability, higher on neuroticism, <laughs> so, uh, and um, lower on openness as well. But they scored higher in conscientiousness. That was the one uh, re redeeming feature. So you can see the things that you do and how the things you do make you feel 
at least in the moment, brings out, enhances or amplifies different aspects of our personalities in the moment. And I, that's something I'm going to come back to in the second half when I look at perhaps ways we can deliberately uh, go about changing our personalities and, um, or bringing out the best in ourselves at least. Okay, so I think now's a good time to take a five minute break and while we have this, I'm just gonna sh I would like you uh, to take a look at these four questions. Um, are these legs shiny? You have to answer. What color is this dress? You may have seen this famous dress before. Uh, there's a, like a, a riddle here for you to read and see if you can come up for, with an explanation. And finally, uh, I want you to think about whether did you know that it's almost impossible to lick your own elbow. <laughs> and uh, so we just take five minutes. Who, who thought the legs are shiny? Yes. <laughs> um, actually, they are, they've just got uh, paint on them. So I, uh, I'm stretching things a bit, but I think this might be uh, a simple test of open-mindedness because uh, if you are score higher on open-mindedness, you're more, li more likely to think of contextual factors that could be explaining the, uh, these white marks. And you might, if you're very observant, have noticed like the art, the hint of art materials here, uh, which is where this paint has come from. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you realize that it's paint, paint on the legs. <laughs> Don't take these too seriously. This is kind of a pseudo-scientific. Um, so with the dress, who thought the dress is gold and white? You know, a few, about a third or a fifth, maybe. Who thought blue and black? Mm, yeah, much more, majority of you. Uh, and who, who thought there is no correct answer? Oh, a smattering, yeah. Okay, in fact, the, the dress is blue and black. You, you might have seen this, it was like a big sort of viral meme a, few, a couple of years back. So the dress is actually blue and black. Uh, it's it's uh, an overexposed image, and it seems to trick the brains of some of us into seeing it as gold and white. I confess I see it as gold and white, even though I know it's blue and black, I can only see it as gold and white. I can't make myself see it as uh, blue and black. Um, it might sound a bit self-serving, uh, but I found this uh, brain imaging paper about a year ago that asked people to look uh, at the, this dress in a brain, they, they were lying in a brain scanner, looked at this dress, and people who saw it as gold and white uh, showed greater brain activity in like visual areas and association areas of their brain, suggesting they were um, working harder to interpret the image, more like what cognitive psychologists call top-down processing, rather than bottom-up, stimulus-driven. Um, so in a way that you could see that as correlating with uh, open-mindedness again because it is uh, being more creative and not going purely on what is in front of you, but also bringing your own interpretation. That would be the golden, golden white, even though it's wrong. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, maybe I 
just cherry-picked that paper because I'm, I'm biased because I see it as gold and white. Uh, the, another paper looked for correlations between people's answers and, they look, and optimism. And they found that people who answer C tend to be more optimistic, uh, which optimism correlates with uh, different personalities, a, a few of the personality traits, especially uh, conscientiousness. Uh, highly conscientious people tend to be more optimistic. And so if you, anyway, if you, if you, if you thought there was no correct answer, the, the, the idea is that people who are optimistic are happier with uncertainty. You know, they don't, they don't find uncertainty uncomfortable because they're optimists. So that's why they, uh, that's the thinking anyway, with that one. Um, so this one, at her mother's funeral, a woman falls in love with a man there who she'd never met before. After the funeral, she had no way to track him down. A short time later, she killed her sister. Did, uh, did any of you have any idea why she may have killed her sister? Yeah, go ahead. That's good thinking. The whole, the whole man and love thing is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. I like your thinking. Um, this is um, another one of these kind of viral memes that went gone around the internet a few times. The idea is if you answer uh, that she killed her sister uh, to so as to set up another funeral, in the hope, in the hope that the. Uh, in the hope that the man come back, comes back. Uh, yeah? Her sister was the man, the one dressed up as a man. Uh, the idea is, yeah, if you... Where's my pointer thing? Yeah, yeah. The, the idea is if you answered that, if you thought that way, in that cunning way to create another funeral to get the man back, then you are a psychopath. Uh, that's the idea. So I don't know if any of you came up with that idea, but... Um, but don't worry if you did, actually, because um, Kevin Dutton, who wrote The Wisdom of Psychopaths, he actually he went into prisons and he actually gave this little riddle to people who are kind of diagnosed in psychopathy. And they did it. They were no more likely to come up with that answer. So it's not really a diagnosis of psychopathy. It's really just a fun, a fun riddle. Uh, there is another, not for psychopathy, but for narcissism. Uh, I was meant to put that up just now. Um, there's a very simple way to measure narcissism, apparently. This is a paper, a very recent paper. If you ask someone, to what extent do you agree with this statement, I am a narcissist, and you add the explanation, note the word narcissist means egotistical, uh, self-focused and vain. Uh, narcissists are more likely to agree strongly and this study found that their agreement with that simple statement correlates very strongly with a faulty item narcissism inventory. So if you want to know if someone is a narcissist, just ask them this. Uh, test them on this simple statement. And uh, it seems to correlate very well with an in-depth measure. And the theory here is that narcissists presented with this explanation, narcissists just see this as another way of uh, seeming special, which they like. <laughs> um, and 
the researchers noted that it's, it's I am a narcissist, like an, a kind of special identity, not narcissistic, which could be considered, um, you know, an insult, I suppose. So, oh, so with the, uh, did you know that you can uh, lick your elbow, own elbow or not? Uh, this, I borrowed this from Brian Little, a personality psychologist in the USA, who's written some great books on personality. And uh, the idea here is that if, you, um, if you're very conscientious, you probably Googled it already to find out if it is true, that you can <laughs> lick your own elbow. Or maybe you even made a note in your diary to look it up later. Uh, if you're a high scorer in neuroticism, you probably didn't like to give it a go and you thought it's just another example of how you have failed uh, <laughs> in, in, in life. Um, <laughs> uh, if you're a high scorer in agreeableness, you probably, uh, yeah, you, you thought about it and you might have had a go just because you're, you know, you're an easygoing kind of person who uh, likes to go along with things. Uh, if you're a high scorer in extroversion, if you're a strong extrovert, yes, you probably tried. You probably tried not just with your elbow, but with the person <laughs> sitting next to you as well. So that's from Brian Little. Um, this one doesn't tell you anything about personality, I don't think, but I just found it the other day. Greg Caruso, psychologist on Twitter. And I just thought it was really cool. Can you see, uh, can you see the guy wearing uh, the white jeans and heels? But can you also see it the other way? Because actually, actually the, man, the man is sitting in the chair. Uh, and you can uh, sometimes flip it back and forth between the two. Uh, I mean, it might correlate with open-mindedness if you can switch backwards and forwards really quickly. <laughs> uh, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> Someone just saw it the other way. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'm going to use the rest of the time I have. Uh, I'll leave some time for questions at the end. And um, for as much time as I have, I'm going to tell you a bit about how personality changes through life and how maybe we can deliberately change our personalities too. So there is something called uh, the maturity principle when you look at personality development through the lifespan. So unlike the old idea that personality stops changing age 30, we know it changes through life. There is a thread of continuity like I mentioned before. Um, but it also changes on average. This is averaging across lots of people. How how do our personality traits tend to change on average? Not everyone um, conforms to the average, but on average, we tend, as we get older, to become less extrovert as we get older, um, but we get more agreeable. We go down in openness, open-mindedness as we get older on average. Um, our neuroticism goes down as we get older, it's a good thing, we get more emotionally stable, tend, tend to, as we get older. Um, pardon? Yes. So in a crisis, which you're going to hear more about later, I think, from later talker, uh, speaker, um, yeah, you'll find, this is across the life, but this is looking at not sort of specific events, this is looking at the whole, across decades, what happens on average, when you average lots and lots of people, rather than looking at any sort of individual 
response to a particular event. Uh, conscientiousness tends to rise up to around midlife, and then it drops off again and uh, goes down. Uh, some people describe that, so uh, in older age, there's this phenomenon called the dol uh, La Dolce Vita, if I've said that right, uh, effect, the sweet, which means sweet life. Uh, the idea being that when we get older and we have fewer responsibilities, we start to go uh, down on conscientiousness because we, we, we don't have so many worries in life anymore. Uh, in adolescence, so although there's those general curves, uh, patterns I just described, in adolescence, there's something called the disruption hypothesis. So although uh, personality tends to increase in stability um, into young adulthood and beyond, uh, there's like this period of regression in adolescence, early adolescence especially, where you see increases in neuroticism and lower conscientiousness, which kind of fits, you know, our, maybe our intuitions about what, you know, teenage years uh, are difficult with all the changes. Uh, so those are the, the trends, you know, that come out when you look at pop, a population level. Another effect you find through life is this, do you remember me telling you about my friend at school, the Butterchaka, and how he seemed to grow in conscientiousness when he was given a, a, a role, an important social role, which he was committed to. So that's social investment theory, and some studies have looked at this. So this one is from Germany, and they compared young people who after school, you know, they went into either community service, they could choose, in, in, either into community service or military service. And um, you can see that those that went into military service, uh, they sort of flatlined on trait agreeability. Uh, those who went into community service, uh, they showed this increase in agreeableness. And so it's an example of how the roles uh, that we select, in some cases for ourselves, uh, shapes our personality over time. Because you can imagine doing community service, it is advantageous to uh, be agreeable, have empathy, and so on. If you are in military service, those traits, uh, aspects of character are not so useful. So it seems to be shaping character over time this one is sort of a more general look at uh, investment in work. So this is an aspect of social investment in work. People who said they agreed, for example, that they felt very strongly obligated to their work, to their job, to their role at work. Over time, this is a period, I think, of two and a half years. People who had those feelings towards their job are feeling uh, duty-bound and uh, committed and motivated. Over time, they increase in uh, trait conscientiousness over, over the years. The lowest, the group with the least investment in their job role, they, uh, they show declines in conscientiousness. So this is something to think about, you know, with the roles that you take on in life, can shape your personality. Uh, if you're in a job that you don't enjoy, it doesn't mean anything to you, it won't be a surprise that you find it hard to keep to your deadlines. <coughs> arrive punctually and so on. It's going to shape your personality over periods of time. On the other hand, if you can find roles that you care about that mean something to you, that resonate with your personal values, it doesn't have to be paid job. It could be, you know, a hobby or volunteer work. If you find a niche or a role like that, you know, that does mean something to you, uh, you're more likely to start behaving and thinking 
and developing in a way that's going to boost your conscientiousness. Of course, there are big events and experiences in life, and they seem to shape our personalities too. Uh, there's research on how getting married changes personality. Might be of interest to this couple. Um, there's a bit of a cliche. I don't know if you remember that scene in Bridget Jones' diary where she's at a dinner party and she's the only singleton and like she looks around the table at all these married couples and they all seem really sort of boring and uh, close-minded. Uh, Long-term studies that have followed people measured their personality at one time point, then measured it again later and compared those who got married with those who didn't. Somewhat following the stereotype, people who got married show declines in extroversion uh, and they go down in uh, open-mindedness as well. So sort of fulfilling that stereotype of people settling down and perhaps becoming a bit more, well, a bit less exciting maybe in their personalities. Uh, on the plus side, another paper looked at um, uh, forgiveness and self-control, measured those aspects of personality before, then uh, in newlyweds, then followed them up for a couple of years afterwards, and they found uh, both increased in people who got married. Self-control increased, and forgiveness increased in people who got married. In fact, as much, I mean, the, these were modest effects, but the, change, the increase in self-control was as much as you see in interventions that are specifically designed to boost people's self-control. So uh, anyone who is married might, might resonate with them, the need for self-control and forgiveness. I don't know. Uh, researchers have looked at this, you know, the idea of uh, people who are married becoming more and more like each other over time. Uh, in fact, people who have been married longer are no more similar in their personalities uh, than people who have been married short periods of time. So the research doesn't seem to back up that idea that we become like our spouses in personality. Having said that, there is something called the Michelangelo phenomenon, which is about the fact that when we have a partner or close friend or partner who uh, has the traits, personality traits that we aspire to, it makes it easier for us to change ourselves in that direction. They seem to serve as a, a model for us. So in that specific case, it's called the Michelangelo phenomenon, the idea being that the uh, partner, the spouse help, helps sculpt you to become your ideal self if they have those traits that you aspire to. So again, that's something to think about, not just the social roles you take on, but the people, the close meaningful people that you mix with, if they are, they have the kind of traits you aspire to and the values that you have, that's gonna help you um, develop in that way. Uh, breakups, researchers have studied this too, changes in personality after divorce, and um, there's a gender difference that's come up in some of this research. So uh, men after divorce uh, seem to show, they show dips in, uh, well, increase in neuroticism and dips in conscientiousness after divorce. Researchers said they seem to have taken it as demoralizing experience. Uh, for women after divorce, the same studies uh, found increased extroversion and open-mindedness in women after divorce, as if they found it a liberating experience. Uh, so I don't make any comments on, on that. 
One of the uh, biggest things, obviously, or maybe the biggest thing that can ever happen to any of us is to have children. And this one is a bit of a puzzle for personality researchers because of that social investment theory that I have mentioned a few times. You would think of all the roles, like social roles you could take on in life, becoming a parent, the most meaningful and dramatic of all, you would think, based on social investment theory, you would see these big upticks in conscientiousness after becoming a parent. Uh, in fact, that isn't coming out in the studies. And if anything, uh, I, this study came out, so it's looking at self-esteem. So it's, not, it's um, not one of the big five traits, but its self-esteem is related to um, a few of the, you know, extroverts tend to have higher self-esteem and low, low neuroticism would go with higher self-esteem. And uh, these mothers, it was 80,000 Norwegian mothers, this study. And when they were pregnant, they showed increases in self-esteem. But soon after giving birth, they showed a three-year dip in their self-esteem. So not at all what we would think from social investment theory is seen to be a harmful you know, effect on personality. Uh, we still don't fully know why, but you know, uh, it's easy to speculate. Uh, one thing is social investment theory, those benefits to conscientiousness and so on from a meaningful role that matters so much to you. Uh, the idea is that uh, that works because you get very clear feedback uh, when you get very clear feedback about what is demanded of you and you're motivated to meet those demands. That leads to beneficial changes. The thing with parenting is, so the, the uh, possible explanation goes, is that um, it's very confusing. Uh, there's so much advice, a lot of it contradictory out there about how to be a good parent, what, you know, how you should behave when you're a parent. So it's all very confusing. You do not, you're not getting that clear feedback and add to that sleep deprivation judgments about, from others about whether you're a good parent or not. And then it starts to make sense why you get this dip uh, in self-esteem. Uh, uh, unpleasant experience to lose our jobs. People have, researchers have looked at personality changes after this and again, they found a gender difference. So men, after losing their job, they, they have shown a temporary increase in agreeableness, which is perhaps uh, a reaction to their new status and they're trying to compensate by being warmer, friendlier. Um, but over time, if they stay unemployed, men tend to show this lasting dip in conscientiousness, trait conscientiousness, which is a worrying trend because uh, lower conscientiousness is gonna make it harder to get a new job. So you've got a bit of a negative feedback loop here. Uh, but knowing that, you know, there are things you could do uh, to, besides getting another job, there are things you could do to try and enhance your conscientiousness, to try and break that negative feedback loop through volunteer work or uh, whatever it might be, uh, starting a new hobby or what have you that, that requires dedication from you could keep your conscientiousness levels higher. Uh, among women, um, they show initial declines after losing their job in uh, conscientiousness and agreeableness. But unlike the men, the, the research showed over time women bounced back. Even if they stayed unemployed, they bounced back and their con conscientiousness rebounded. And uh, it's bound to be slightly controversial, but the research has speculated that's because even today, with our traditional sort of gender norms, 
around uh, the genders, it's easier perhaps for women to find a niche social roles outside of work. That was the, that was the uh, speculation. So um, they, they, they find uh, meaning and uh, roles that they can fill outside of work that then benefit their personality development again. So um, that's all very passive. You know, those are things kind of happening to us. Those are some of the trends that you see in big events in life and how they shape personality. Um, for this book I'm writing, uh, you know, I've got interested in like recognizing the malleability of personality and how it continues to change through life. It's made me more interested, you know, maybe look for ways we could tweak deliberately rather than passively waiting for events and relationships to change us. Perhaps we could take deliberate steps to tweak some of uh, these aspect, underlying aspects of personality. And then, you know, uh, sort of hack into this feedback loop uh, by changing our habits of thought and so on, our ways of relating to others. We can change this dynamic, have uh, more beneficial life experiences, feedback, and help our pers personality development in a positive way. I think it only needs to be some slight changes. You're not ever going to change because, you know, we are restrained to an extent by our genetic endowment, you know, we're not going to, I'm not arguing that you can transform yourself from one extreme, you know, personality extreme to another, but you can definitely make tweaks. And only small changes could have big effects, a snowball. Imagine you change your personality enough that you apply for a job uh, that you wouldn't have done otherwise, or you go agree to meet up uh, and go to a party or something that you wouldn't have done otherwise, uh, join a club a tennis club, or whatever it might be, that you wouldn't have done otherwise if you hadn't have made the small but significant changes to your personality. That can then spiral and snowball uh, in, I, hopefully, I think, in a positive way. I'm not the only one thinking this way. So a couple of years, uh, three years ago, this was a New, a New York Times op-ed column. Other people are beginning to recognize the importance of personality traits for life outcomes. Headlines, should schools teach personality? Because there's recognition that it's not just our, you know, it's not just intelligence and academic skills that are important for a healthy life, successful life. It's uh, personality traits too, and that they are to an extent malleable. Before I get into, so I've been looking uh, recently uh, at interventions that change key aspects of those big five traits. I'm going to give you some examples in a minute, but the underlying principles behind this are if you want to deliberately go about developing your personality, if you just have vague aims, like you want to be more, you know, I would like to be more open-minded, uh, you're unlikely to be successful. It's similar, you can draw an analogy of like health, uh, fitness. You know, if you set a New Year's resolution, I'm going to try and uh, go running more. I'm going to try and get fitter next year it's unlikely to be successful. You need to make specific commitments. The more specific you can be, the more likely you are to succeed. So rather than committing to being more extroverted, if you, for example, said, uh, I mean, you could start quite modest. If you said, like, once a week at work, rather than sending an email, I'm going to telephone uh, whoever it is, or I'm going to go to their desk. Uh, it might not come naturally to you at first, 
the thing is, this is all about developing new habits, because once things become habitual, then they're essentially becoming part of your personality. Uh, with open-mindedness, again, if you just you know, think, I want to be more cultural next year, it's not likely to happen. If you make a dedicated commitment you know, to, for example, I'm going to go to the theatre once a month, make it a commitment, uh, even specify the day and the theatre, whatever. The more specific you can be, the more likely you will be successful. Um, that's basically what I just said. Uh, you can either do, you know, little tiny tweaks. Maybe if you're kind of slightly, you know, if you're introverted or and, uh, emotionally sensitive, you don't like human interactions much with strangers, maybe you, for example, always go to the automatic uh, checkout at the shop. You could just make a tweak, like, I, I'm not going to use those anymore. I'm going to go, I'm going to use, uh, unless you're in a rush or whatever, I'm going to use the cashier force you know, that uh, human interaction. That's just one tiny tweak, but imagine if you build these up, you could, uh, you don't have to become, you know, a raving out and out party animal type extrovert, but you can make slight tweaks to develop your personality if you want to, uh, which might help you achieve your goals. Uh, like I say, smaller effects can snowball uh, because these things accumulate. Um, by changing our personalities, we change how we behave, and you know, little changes can build up over time. You know, the Sky Cycling Sports Team, they talk about minimal gains. They just make these little tiny tweaks to enhance performance, I think. That's a good analogy for this. Um, bear in mind the situational effects as well, and think about, you know, um, you don't just bring your personality to the roles and in life that you occupy. They are also shaping you. Uh, we don't always have much choice, but maybe we have more choice than we think. And uh, you know, if you are in a job that you don't find fulfilling, uh, um, you know, that could be shaping you over time. It might be worth considering making a change. Um, that could have knock-on effects on your personality and then other aspects of your life. Similar story with friends and partners. Uh, People, if you mix with people who leave you in a bad mood, that's going to shape your personality in the moment and that can accumulate. If you mix with people who make you feel comfortable and leave you in a good mood, uh, that's going to shape your personality in a positive direction. Uh, it's not going to be easy. Um, it's going to take a lot of effort because, as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, our personality is what we do. By definition, it's, what hap it's how you behave automatically, how you think automatically. So changing that, by definition, is going to take effort. It's going to be uncomfortable at first. Also, you're more likely to succeed in uh, developing your personality if it's in the service of some overarching like, values or goals. Just like, having the mission to just, I just want to change myself for the sake of it, again, is less likely to succeed than if you would like to change yourself in the service of some... Uh, bigger goal. So if you, I don't know, if you aspire to a role, you know, promotion at work that requires that you network more or do public speaking or something and you currently don't find that comfortable, I think you're more likely to succeed in changing your personality if it is in the service, of, you know, if it's uh, towards that larger ambition that you have rather than being an end in itself, the personality change. Instead, the personality change is towards... Um, that goal, or it could be a more abstract value. You know, maybe you uh, uh, you 
have uh, you, you want to get involved in charity work, or you know you you are um, upset by bad things happening in a community, or you know that is your goal. You want to you want to ease uh, help uh, ease suffering, but you're held back by your disposition because you find it hard to. Uh, mix with others or you find it hard you know or you're disorganized or you find it hard to juggle work and volunteer work whatever changing your personality in the service of that more uh, sort of overarching value or goal is more likely to succeed i think than just changing your personality for its own sake uh, you've probably heard about growth mindset the idea that things like intelligence and ab ability and to that list we can now add personality are malleable they're not set in stone Merely belie believing that is uh, going to help you uh, make personality development will be easier for you if, you if you hold that belief. Hopefully, I will have convinced you a little bit today, so you uh, might uh, have a you know, start. If you, don't, if you believe a leopard never changes its spots, if you think people cannot ever change, uh, you're going to find it hard you know, you, to be motivated enough to put the changes in place, uh, behavioral and habitual changes in place to develop your personality. And uh, yeah, it's a bit corny, but I just said it won't be easy again because this is something take, to change your personality is going to take, you know, it will take commitment. It'll be uncomfortable probably in many cases at first. It's all about perseverance and changing things that are effortful, doing it, repeating it enough until it, it becomes habitual and becomes part of who you are. So um, that's going to give you an example of a kind of specific technique, these kind of specific techniques you could try for each trait, one for each of the big five traits. This chap's meant to be extroverted. It's a bit hard to pick, choose pictures to illustrate. So he's an extrovert. To become more extroverted, uh, you could try something called anxious reappraisal. Very, very simple technique. There was a study a couple of years ago uh, that um, they tested out People were about to do a difficult challenge. Uh, they had to sing in front of other people. It was a surprise challenge. They had to like, sing this song. It was embarrassing. Or um, they had to do some mass tasks under pressure in public. And the researchers coached some of the participants to uh, say to themselves, I'm feeling excited uh, beforehand. And uh, the others said, I'm feeling anxious. Um, or they said nothing. Um, and the researchers found that people who sort of encouraged to interpret their bodily feelings and emotions as ex excitement rather than anxiety showed less of a stress response uh, when they were doing this public embarrassing or difficult public challenge. And the idea is that it, this works because it's better doing that. It's better to sort of tell yourself to think of the sensations as excitement uh, rather than just trying to calm down, because you know, other, other typical conventional advice would be take deep breaths, try and calm down. But then you're trying to fight against those strong feelings of adrenaline and arousal. It's better to reinterpret that because it's very similar uh, bodily. You know, excitement and, and anxiety are very similar at physiological levels, so it's better to practice anxious reappraisal. So it's something you could try, because extroverts, that's how they see challenges. They see challenges as... Uh, an opportunity and by thinking more in those terms seeing things more as opportunities rather than threats 
seeing it as exciting or anxiety provoking, then uh, you can maybe tweak your personality a little bit toward the extrovert end of the spectrum if you want to. Don't have to, nothing wrong with being introverted, but if you think that might help you achieve your uh, goals, then you uh, could try that. This is meant to be a conscientious person who has put everything into folders. Um, so, something I found interesting here is studies that have tracked people over time and looked at those who managed to achieve their goals and resist temptation and those who don't succeed. What they found is uh, the achievers, uh, they don't have cast iron willpower. Uh, exerting willpower didn't correlate with uh, goal achievement. The high achievers, those who resisted uh, temptations, they actually avoided temptations in the first place. This was a, one of these studies that gives people prompts on their mobile phone you know, to record what they're doing, what's happening, whether they're exerting willpower, whether they're resisting a temptation. The goal achievers, the high achievers, it's almost like they recognized human weakness. They had an instinct to recognize that humans have weak willpower. And so the way ahead to uh, conscientiousness is perhaps not about developing that kind of cast iron willpower. Maybe it's about being strategic, not uh, letting yourself face these temptations in the first place. So, uh, for example, it could be something simple like um, a modern uh, phenomenon meant to be bedtime procrastination, find it hard to go to sleep on time because we've got the iPad in bed reading Kindles and what have you and uh, makes us delay going to sleep. It's very difficult to resist temptation, so just maybe set a rule that you don't have those temptations uh, in the bedroom or wherever. You know, set yourself a rule, treat yourself as fallible, recognize you don't have very good willpower, so I'm not gonna let myself have iPads uh, when I'm supposed to be going to sleep, or whatever. It's that kind of thing. Or don't work, choose a route to work, walking to work that doesn't go past the bakery with the delicious muffins in the window. Uh, that seems like conscientious people, that's what they do. It's not that they walk past the muffins and are unfazed. They don't go that way, they go a different way. Uh, this is meant to be a chilled out, low neuroticism person. And uh, a, maybe a not so obvious approach to increasing emotional resilience is online memory training exercises. So if you Google end back tasks, they're these kind of tasks that uh, require that we juggle uh, bits of information in our mind uh, at the same time, numbers or letters. And so it's N hyphen back task. And it seems like what's that got to do with uh, neuroticism? But what researchers have found is that people who practice these kind of tasks, you find them in uh, brain training programs like Lumosity, uh, COG, Fit, uh, Cogmed, I think is another one. They tend to use these kind of uh, games, that uh, exercises that require that you juggle these numbers and letters in your mind. And researchers have found that doing these memory training exercises help, uh, reduces people's anxiety levels and uh, levels of worry. And they think that's because it, uh, doing these exercises helps give you more kind of mental control over your own thoughts, sort of builds up your working memory uh, muscles which is for juggling you know, what, and what we pay attention to. So if you harness 
you're working memory through these exercises, then you're less likely to have your mind grabbed by threats or by worrisome thoughts. Uh, for boosting agreeability, uh, uh, you could try reading more literary fiction. So a slightly controversial area with some negative replications, but there are a lot of positive studies too that suggest reading fiction uh, boosts empathy and theory of mind, which is a hallmark of scoring high in, in agreeability. Uh, Open-mindedness. Uh, you could try doing puzzles like crosswords and Sudoku. So there was a recent trial with older adults uh, that found that a training program that involved these kind of games boosted their open-mindedness at a time of life when open-mindedness tends to be in decline. And one theory here is that because open-mindedness is very much tied up with confidence, and the researchers think that completing these games helped the volunteers boost their confidence in their own sort of mental abilities. And that makes it more likely and makes you more willing to try out new things. Also, um, exercise has been found to link strongly with open-mindedness. And it's probably a similar, uh, similar link because exercise, it makes you, you know, feeling fitter and stronger it's going to help you be more open-minded, more open to trying out new, new things. Uh, I'm getting a bit close to running out of time. Um, i just tell you this one quickly. So, so that's one for each of the big five traits. Because neuroticism is the trait that people most want, apparently, to reduce uh, neuroticism, I thought I would just give you one extra one. And, and this ties in a bit with what I was telling you earlier about situations affecting our moods, affecting, which affects our personality. So a study came out this year uh, testing what the researchers called, this is Thomas Webb at University of Sheffield, testing what they called the situation selection strategy. So uh, this was the paper. And it's a pretty simple idea. It's just being more conscious of how the things you choose to do, how they make you feel, the different activities and situations that you put, you, you put yourself in how paying more attention to how that makes you feel. And these researchers found that people who do that more intuitively, who say they pay more attention to how different situations and activities make them feel, they tend to be um, more emotionally resilient, like the two things go together. People who are more emotionally sensitive, more neurotic, they tend not to think that way. So the researchers then tested, well, maybe if you train people to be more mindful of situation selection, of course, many situations come upon us without choice, but hopefully many of us do have a fair degree of freedom. And they, they coach them before a weekend, their participants, they, they got a whole load of volunteers, they coach them to repeat this to themselves and to commit to it. If I am deciding what to do this weekend, then I will select activities that will make me feel good and avoid doing things that will make me feel bad. They found afterwards, after the weekend was over, they had their volunteers back, and they found that they had those who followed this instruction compared with a control group. They, they, they did this. They spent more time in activities that made them feel good. But crucially, the, the volunteers who were more emotionally sensitive, following this intervention made them experience, led to them to experience more positive mood over the weekend. So it seemed to help them uh, choose 
situations that made them feel better and that uh, boosted their mood over the weekend. So it's very obvious, but I actually after I read this paper, it has made me, I've been a lot more conscious of it because I think lots of things we do out, you know, out of habit. We don't necessarily think, well, what, what would make me, you know, what would help my mood uh, feel better? Uh, other research has shown, for example, you know, we spend a lot of time watching TV, for example, even though it might not make us feel good. We kind of do things through force of habit rather than doing the meaningful things um, or making the extra effort to do things that would boost our mood. Uh, this is the kind of dynamic that I'm, you know, I'm interested in. Uh, and we, by paying more attention to this, uh, what situations we put ourselves in, who we mix with, uh, what roles we commit to, uh, we can you know, influence our mood and that influences our personality. When we make changes to our traits, we're also more likely to you know, choose different situations as well. So you can try and generate a positive feedback loop. Okay, uh, bear in mind, there's research that shows whatever our basic personality traits, when we are, do things that make us feel more friendly and outgoing and conscientious, tends to make us happier. Doesn't matter whether we're introvert or extrovert. It might vary for you what kind of situations, what kind of people lead you to feel sociable and outgoing and conscientious. That might vary for different people, but the, when people experience those, feel that way, they tend to be happier. And bear in mind this study uh, that showed um, this was with about 19,000 Australian people. The happier they were at time one, followed them up over several years, their personalities tended to become more open-minded, uh, more agreeable, more conscientious if they were happier. So you can see how you, if you start playing around with these dynamics, uh, if you can get into situations that lead you to be happier because you feel more outgoing, conscientious, and then that sets in train some of these uh, effects of happiness and emotion on personality. So setting up positive feedback loops. Uh, maybe for discussion in a second, I think an important point around all, uh, question mark around all this is what about authenticity? What about being true to ourselves? And I think that's a good point and maybe something we can talk about. I won't discuss it now. And just one final, final thought. Um, a recent paper found that 30 lesson in, is a little video lesson on that, how personality is malleable, helped teenagers become less anxious and depressed over time. Uh, we're not teenagers, but I, you know, I like to think maybe just this message that personality isn't set in stone, that it's something that we can work on and develop is a healthy, beneficial message. And it's certainly one thing it did with these teenagers, it helped them to not just see difficulties in life as, you know, that they're stuck with them. They tended to acquire more of a mindset of like, what behaviors can I learn? How can I adapt to get over the obstacles in life? So hopefully, um, you know, all this kind of material I'm hoping kind of spreads that message and helps us think that way. Okay, so we have some time for questions and thank you for listening uh, to my lecture. Thank you. <laughs>
Uh, beliefs, what kind of beliefs? Do you mean beliefs about beliefs personality? About or personality. Well, I, I guess I'm hoping, learning about some of the literature, some of the studies that have been done, we, yeah, we tend to have implicit ideas and beliefs around these things. I don't know where they come from. They probably come from our, our upbringing or the culture we live in, maybe. Um, but I, hopefully, through learning about the actual you know, empirical evidence, that's followed people over time and showed that they change. And what I'm going to put in my book, as well as like you know stories of people, of who have achieved change, uh, I'm reading um, uh, Majid Nawaz's book. Uh, he founded uh, Kliam, the uh, anti-Muslim extremism uh, organization. And he, you know, reading his story, he's someone who you know if you'd met him when he was young, he used to walk around with a knife strapped to his back and so on, and uh, you know, he would score very low on agreeability, maybe a hint of psychopathy. If you met him today, you know, he's a force for good. So I don't know, learning about individual stories I, it can probably be compelling as well to change beliefs. Yeah. Thing. yeah. Um, but then you put a picture of Trump up, which doesn't go well for the theory of kind of jumping into that. Perhaps you could speculate more, um, just the utility of this in the context of the school and kind of what we could do perhaps to help kids. Um, how do you mean about Trump? What you mean that was demoralizing to. No, what I mean uh, is so you're talking about people who are, have one personality. Yeah. Then they go to a respectful role, like the presidency. Oh, I see. Perhaps yeah. Yeah. That's what I meant by that. Yeah, 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 I see. Uh, well, you're right. And I, <laughs> I, re I remember early in his presidency, I, think, I remember commentators saying, you know, he will, ch he will change. There was speculation he will change. He'll become presidential. Um, I think he said, I'll be more presidential than any other president. <laughs> uh, I think you're absolutely right. There's the, the I don't know how many, uh, it's been, is it two years coming up for? Um, there's little evidence for any change. But, I mean, what I've been talking about is um, willful change that comes from the person. So I've been, uh, that's some of the, what I've been talking about is for people who want to change. To change someone who doesn't want to be changed uh, is a very, very different prospect. And uh, I would say, uh, I, I do see what you mean because that teacher at my school, he uh, gave that opportunity uh, to that peer of mine. I mean, a difference there is obviously a different time of life, adolescence, uh, greater malleability at that time. Uh, Trump's obviously come in uh, at the end of uh, his career, and I think it probably is easier to shape for these forces to have uh, uh, shaping influence earlier on. But um, yeah, but I mean, these aren't hard and fast rules. There are processes that can work. They were, I, 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 I'm not saying they will always work. And of course, as I said just now, I'm looking at these stories of people who have changed from bad to good, uh, to put it crudely, in their personality. Of course, there are stories the other way. There are people who, early in life, appear to have it all going for them and have positive personality traits, but actually ends up uh, derailing, and they seem to go backwards in some of their traits. Um, Tiger Woods might be an example that comes to mind. He was exalted as 
you couldn't get anyone more conscientious, for example. But I mean, he's you know, it's a complicated story, but I mean, in many ways, he's ended up being an emblem of the opposite. So, uh, yeah, it's not easy, and this, you can have negative personality change as much as positive. Yeah. Well, uh, just a couple of things is um, off the top of my head. So I, th I think it's an understandable issue, you know, so not wanting to be fake, uh, you know. I, but I mean, one way of looking at it is actually we're not, really, we're not defined by our personality traits. They are not who we are. Who we are is more our values and our goals in life, what is meaningful to us. So that's what being true to yourself is it's about following those values and dreams and ambitions and uh, you know the morals and things that matter to you and if you can tweak your traits in the service of those goals then you're being true you know in a way you're being true to yourself we're more than these uh, constellation of habits of thought and behavior so that's one way of thinking of it another way is um, actually I've been interested quite a few studies I've looked at how what you know when do people feel most authentic, feel like they're being themselves? And there was a study came out recently that found people felt most authentic, not when they were acting in line with their actual personality traits, but when they were acting in line with their ideal selves, acting as the person they would like to be. That's when people felt most authentic and people feel most authentic in relationships as well that bring out their ideal selves, not their actual selves. So. I've been keeping an eye on this line of research about authenticity, and I think I'm very sensitive to that idea, you know, about not wanting to be fake. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to send a message that we, you know, there's bad personalities that we should change. So I think it's more about if you feel that you could benefit from tweaking your, your changing personality to be healthier, happier, and uh, achieve what matters to you, then I think that is a form of authenticity. Yeah, hopefully. But I'm interested in what other people think as well. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if we all became carbon copies of each other with identical sort of trait profiles, it would be really depressing. And there's, um, you know, they're all different niches that, niches that we can occupy. And for a team, I think different teams could obviously benefit from a mix, people with different strengths and weaknesses. Uh, you've probably heard of Susan Cain's book about the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. So while extroverts tend to be happier, and uh, that's, uh, well, you know, that sounds like a good thing. I mean, there's definitely a place for in introverts. Introverts, you know, they, uh, they can study in the, and focus on things quietly for long periods of time, typically, you know, to stereotype. We need people like that. We don't want everyone just going around uh, seeking attention. 
seeking, uh, taking risks. You know, we need, it's good to have a mix. I think probably with, uh, with neuroticism, it's hard, although there is that kind of evolutionary argument that it's helpful to have people who are warriors and so on, I, I think on balance, it's probably better for us at least to not be too emotionally unstable. So there are some aspects of personality we probably all benefit from shifting in a similar direction, but things like introversion, extroversion, and also openness, and conscientiousness, you know, I think especially when you, look, you zoom out a bit about what's good for society and teams, and it's good to have a mix, I'm sure. Uh, I don't know. Hello there. Hi. I was struck listening to you about the sense in which maybe different roles that we have bring to four different personality traits. I just wondered whether this authenticity is, is uniform across the, the whole of who we are. I was, for example, I had a boss who was very powerful, dominant in the workplace, and I got invited home for dinner once with him, and he was like a mouse. <laughs> Submissive. Yeah. Really shocked me. And then reading perhaps at its most extreme about Nazi guards who could go out and do untold cruelty to people, then come home and be loving, caring people. To what extent are personality traits reflected in some ways in the different roles and sub-personalities that we may have in, in in terms of the different roles we play in life. Is there, is there another layer of complexity to this? Yeah, well, I, I think you're absolutely right. So, I, I mean, trait theorists would probably argue it's all about averaging the more, the more roles and situations you can average over. I think they would probably argue that you'll see these traits come through uh, on average, you know, when you sample across the different roles, even. So your boss, uh, he, you know, may, maybe he's got other roles as well, his... Uh, at his golf club or whatever, and you average across all of them, they would probably say you'll see these key traits, these habits of thought and emotion and so on coming through on average. Um, but you're absolutely right, when you zoom in on particular roles, particular situations, then you see certain characteristics come to the fore. And I'm sure, yeah, by being more aware and sensitive to those influences, you know, especially if we want to be a different kind of person, I think that's really important. And I think, yeah, I completely agree with you. It's fascinating the different sides to our characters that can come out. Uh, I think I read uh, Rafael Nadal's mother talked about how he, yeah, he's like two different, completely different people on the court to off, off, the, off the court. And, uh, you know, as extreme as you just said. Like, and it, I think that is fascinating, the idea that we have these multiple selves. So, yeah, it's probably short-sighted to just... Yeah, uh, reduce it all down to just those basic scores on the five traits. But uh, it's it, interesting, uh, you know, area that that different selves idea. Um, I've got a bit of a two-part question. So uh, okay. going back to the, uh, this is more to do with uh, career success in a yeah. in competitive careers. So you uh, mentioned um, that high levels of conscientiousness and uh, low levels of agreeableness predict career success. Um, do low uh, levels of neuroticism uh, predict uh, uh, career success? And um, if it does, do is high levels of disagreeableness linked with high levels of neuroticism at all? Uh, well, they're meant to be, you know, the whole concept statistically behind these big five traits is they're meant to be independent of, of each other. So it should be perfectly possible to be high in, in one and low in the other. Uh, 
theoretically. Um, the, the studies that look at the correlations between the traits and career outcomes, you would think neuroticism would be a big one, but conscientiousness always comes out on top. Um, the, I would say low, I mean, if you're highly, high neuroticism is going to be an um, obstacle to career success, but it's not as important a factor as conscientiousness. Uh, the agreeability is low, um, particularly in, you know, cutthroat, highly competitive careers. Not all, not all careers, it's especially, you know, corporate, high, uh, dog-eat-dog, cutthroat kind of situations. Um, you might see, did you, I don't know if you saw that Jordan Peterson interview that went viral with Kathy Newman and he was bringing up that part of the gender pay gap is because women score um, higher on average in agreeableness. So that's where he's coming from with that, that kind of thing because he's saying that that's uh, holding, potentially holding women back because they tend to be more agreeable. And, and if you meet, you know, uh, high-flying CEOs, they're not necessarily the nicest people. <laughs> <laughs> Personality-wise, so yeah, that's where that's coming from. Are the big five personality traits evenly distributed in the um, population? So there's as many agreeable people or disagreeable people, or is it skewed those five traits? Uh, as far as I know, it's uh, we, we there's a sort of uh, bunching around the middle. So most of us, yeah, so you get a spread, and uh, the majority of us are not on the, uh, you know, we don't, we're not on the extremes. You get kind of normal distribution. So a lot of this, uh, you know, just to describe the traits, you, tend, you know, we tend, uh, I've been doing it, and when you read about it, it's like you talk about stereotypes a lot. A lot of us are near the middle. Um, do you remember that graph I put up? And a lot of us actually vary more across different situations than we even do from one another, averaged over time. So, um, yeah, I, 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 so I think it's kind of normally dist distributed. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. This is actually a, a, a attempted a reply to the question: Is neuroticism related to career success? In my observations from a long time in the corporate world, is a lot of these very successful people are actually pretty crazy. <laughs> quite a common recipe for success is a quite high level of neuroticism, which produces a drive to succeed, then channeled through a high level of conscientiousness will get you a very long way. Yeah. All sane people just will not put up with what it takes to be very successful. Yeah. Well, uh, I, in that interview, the Channel 4 interview, Jordan Peterson said the same thing. Like, you know, to reach the very top, you've got to kind of give over your whole life. You're going to be a bit crazy. Yeah, you've got to give over most of your life. And, um, and remember what I said about successful psychopaths as well. So there's uh, very, very high flyers in many fields tend to score quite high on psychopathy, especially fearless dominance. Um, so, yeah, We're, I think any extremes of life, you're going to get... Uh, people with uh, unusual personality profile at the extremes of... Uh... Yeah, I certainly I spoke to someone who was the uh, finance director of a very, very large company, particularly that chief executives, you know, they're not normal people. <laughs> they have very great strengths, but they yeah. have some very great weaknesses as well. Okay. <laughs> so if we come back to one o'clock, that would be great. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.